0: Well, we can turn back to the passage you read there from the Gospel of Luke. We'll just look at the passage of these uh, four trials and just see what they tell us about uh, the Saviour. As we know, uh, Jesus was up the entire preceding uh, night. Verse 66, I suppose, could be translated as the start of it uh, at six o'clock in the morning. Because that's when uh, <clears throat> the day begins in Israel, and and as they say there, when day came. So it's six o'clock in the morning they make their way to their council meeting. But uh, as we know, Jesus had been uh, questioned in in the high priest's house for a few hours on the previous evening after he was arrested and then taken there. And as we know, in the high priest's house, he had been um, made a fool of uh, or at least they tried to make a fool of him and they had as we remember they had um, blindfolded him and slapped slapped him and asked him to identify who had done it and that was um, rather um, despicable but it was only the start (coughs) that particular Experience that Jesus went through was not a formal trial. It was one that for which they didn't have any authority for doing it in a, in a legal manner. But the trials that are described in the passage we read, they're all formal trials. And the, the Jews had um, an obvious difficulty. Um, they I mean these jews that were that were uh, trying to get Jesus uh, out of the way uh, they had an, off- an obvious difficulty and that was um, getting rid of him i mean they could come up with their real reasons for getting rid of him, uh, which was they regarded him as a heretic, but that particular um Opinion wouldn't have carried for anything before Pilate. So they had to get a religious conviction before the Sanhedrin, and then they had to get a civil conviction by Pilate. Uh, when they started out on the process at uh, six in the morning, uh, they had no idea that Herod would get involved. And indeed, As far as I can remember, it's only Luke that mentions this trial before Herod. So the other Gospels, if I remember right, don't mention it. So I just want to look at each of these trials and see what they say. The one before the Sanhedrin is described in verses 66 to 71. Of John chapter, so Luke chapter twenty-two. Uh, what was the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin was the Jewish council. Uh, the Romans, who ruled the country, uh, they allowed the Jews to have certain uh, areas in which their law would apply, as long as it didn't interfere. Uh, with the rule of Rome. The Sanhedrin had both um, religious and uh, civil members. The civil members, well, they were called rulers and several of them appear in the Gospels, people such as Joseph of Arimathea. He was a ruler and a member of the Sanhedrin. The rulers may or may not have been devout. I mean, some of them probably were Herodians, determined just for Herod's group to get priority. And others would have been uh, supportive of the Romans, and others would have been against them but wouldn't have dared to say it because if they had said it they would only say it once. Then there were the religious groups in the Sanhedrin the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees they were generally regarded as lay people and they were very traditional, they liked what they regarded as the the, um, practices passed down from the past and in order to preserve these practices, they had all kinds of laws, none of which were authorized in God's word. So they had added numerous practices uh, to what the Bible said. But the Pharisees, at least, they were kind of orthodox in their belief about God and so on. They didn't like idolatry and anything like that. But alongside them, and basically in charge of the Sanhedrin, were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the the official um, religious people, like the high priests, which, of course, is a contradiction. But it had been arranged by the, the Romans; you could only have one high priest at any given time, according to the Old Testament law. But in and Jesus', in Jesus time, there was two. There was Caiaphas and his father-in-law Annas. But that just shows how corrupt the system was. So there's all these um, different groups in the Sanhedrin and uh, just even thinking about these different groups tells us it was very difficult to get an agreement on a verdict. Virtually the only way to get an agreement on a verdict was if the prisoner admitted it. So therefore their aim had to be to get the prisoner to admit to something, and if the prisoner kept on denying everything, then the sanhedrin would never get a verdict because he would appeal to one group against another. I mean, Paul himself did that on one occasion didn't he when he was in the when he was before them, and he saw an opportunity of dividing them by just appealing to the resurrection. Because the Pharisees accepted the resurrection, but the Sadducees didn't. And the minute Paul appealed to the resurrection, the Sanhedrin was divided. So therefore, the only way they could get a conviction was if they actually managed to get the prisoner to uh, to admit to something. And that's what they're trying to do in verses 67 and down to verse 71. They say to him there in verse 67, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, well, now if, um, if anybody else had been up there on uh, trial for being the Messiah, and we have to remember that there were others who claimed to be the Messiah, but at this particular point they would probably realize it wouldn't be in their best interest to admit that they were. But Jesus, well, he doesn't answer that way at all. Uh, they, they question him and they say to him, are you the Christ, are you the Messiah? And Jesus first of all replies, It doesn't make any difference what I say to you. It basically says that in verse 67 and 68. If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But then he goes on to say that from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I don't know what uh, that answer by Jesus would Um, bring to your mind but I would say it was uh, very clear and very confident and very challenging I mean it's clear isn't it because he basically says yes I am the Messiah and it was confident Because he knew where he was going. That's what he says. But from now on, and he knew where he was going. And it's also challenging. I mean, he ends up challenging them because they have to respond to him, which they do in verse uh, 70. And they say to him, Are you the Son of God then? So, his answer to them, as I said, was clear, and it was a statement of great confidence, and it was also challenging. And I suppose that's always how Jesus speaks, doesn't he? He, Everything he says is clear, and he never says anything tentatively, and he's always challenging. In what he says. As we think about um, these aspects of his answer, um, when he says that he's the Messiah and all the other things he says as well, it's all very short. He doesn't go into any kind of prolonged uh, statement about his who he is and so on. It's just very short. And Of course that in itself is is a reminder to us that usually when we're answering something the shorter the answer the better. Adding things to an answer can sometimes just bring confusion into the conversation. And Jesus just says to him he says to him basically you've got all the evidence you need that I am the Messiah. I mean, they were aware of it. They were aware of all the miracles that he had done. And and he had pointed out to them on numerous occasions that what these miracles were, the purpose of these miracles was to indicate who he was. They were the signs of the Messiah, that he had come. Even when this When the followers of John the Baptist were sent by John um, to check if Jesus really was the Messiah, that's what Jesus pointed to. You see the signs. They're there. You've seen them with your own eyes. And that was true of the Sanhedrin. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had seen his signs and they had heard his teaching and therefore, when Jesus basically said, I am, it's inevitable that he was the Messiah, it's inevitable that they would think of all these signs. I mean, that's why they were trying to get rid of him. Because during these signs, he was claiming to be God. And we can, I suspect they asked the question in verse 70 because all these ideas came back to mind. Why should they suddenly jump to him being the Son of God in verse 70? Unless they started to think that way. So his answer about him being the Messiah, well, they just got the point there and then. And that was enough. But then about his confidence. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I mean, from, from one point of view, the, the situation looks almost ridiculous. I mean, Jesus has just been spent a few hours getting taunted by them, slapped by them, and mistreated by them. And here he is, and he turns to the enlarged meeting of the Sanhedrin and says to them from now on I'll be sitting at the right hand of God I mean they had plans for his future I mean their, their plans for his future was that in a few hours they'd be rid of him but his plans for the future were very different from their plans they hoped that somehow or other they would get Pilate to uh, pass pass the death sentence on him. And strangely, Jesus is just basically saying to them, isn't he? This road you're mapping out for me, it's going to take me to the right hand of God. And of course, when he says that, he's not talking about the next few hours. But he is talking about the next few weeks. He doesn't give them any kind of detailed uh, timetable as to how this is going to be worked out. But he just says, you're putting me, and though you don't know it, you're putting me on the road that takes to the throne of God. And he says it with great confidence, doesn't he? Just lets them know this is what's going to happen. And again, it's a very short statement. And how was Jesus so confident? Where did Jesus get his confidence from? And I suppose different answers can be given to that question. But one of them is he got his consequence from the word of God. When he came to suffer, he didn't have any um, helps, apart from the helps that we have. It might be hard for us to understand that, because we're always liable to think of um, Jesus and his experiences as somehow or other not being fully human, and that at every stage of his journey, he could somehow move himself out of a normal human experience. But Jesus, as far as his humanity is concerned, he has got to stand there before the Sanhedrin and stand there in faith. And where would his faith get his information from? Well we get it from the same places. we get information from the Word of God. Shortly before he's arrested, and as he speaks to the people about different things, one passage of the Bible that's very much in his mind is Psalm 110. And Psalm 110, as we know, talks about the Messiah going to sit at God's right hand. And those who take their time to work out certain things tell us that the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110. Indeed, we're told that the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon on Psalm 110. And from a human point of view, we could ask this question, why was Psalm 110 so precious to the early church? And I don't think it's pushing the bounds of um, speculation to say it was precious to the early church because it was precious to the Savior. And as he's going into the darkness, and he's been into a deeper darkness than we'll ever know, and obviously the Holy Spirit was at work in his heart, but the light that shone in it shone from God's Word. His law, God's law, was in his heart, and it's not just Psalm 110, is it? When he goes to the cross, it's Psalm 22, and so on. And there's many references. But why was Jesus confident? The answer is both profound. And elementary. He was confident because he knew the Bible. And where do we get our confidence from? Where else can we get it from? What is the rock that gives us infallible information? There's only one place to get it. And that's the Bible. And if we want to have a faith experience in difficult times, whatever these times are, we have to know the Bible. We're not just to hope for the best. And Jesus there, he's given an example, isn't he? How the word of God can give confidence in a place where you wouldn't expect it to be. As he's there on trial, where they're vehemently getting at him. And of course they challenged him, because they obviously saw what he was claiming. The title, Son of Man, It's taken from the book of Daniel, as we know. And it's a title of a great king with global power. And they got the point. Are you the son of God then? And again, Jesus doesn't hide it. And he actually says to them, it's you that's confessing it. Doesn't he? And the question comes up who's on trial? Or who's the judge? You're confessing it. And of course, they had got their confession from their prisoner. Well, of course, they had no power. It wasn't a capital crime in the eyes of Rome for somebody to think they were the son of God. Although it was heresy in Israel. So they had to make their way to Pilate. And we see he appears before Pilate twice, at the first time described in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 23. And as we look at it, we can see that there's not a word there about Jesus being the Messiah. When they come to work to Pilate with their... With their um, right, sorry, I should say, there's not a word there about him being God. When they, come, when they take him towards Pilate, Uh, they accuse him of rebellion. And they say to Pilate, what this man is guilty of, and he's misleading our nation, and telling us not to pay taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be the Messiah. No mention there of Jesus being guilty of, of claiming to be divine. Now we have to try and picture the scene in order to get the point. Here's Jesus after a sleepless night. Here he is after having gone through the agony of Gethsemane and the shame of being arrested and hauled to the high priest's house and he's had to stand there for a few hours, getting abused, and then he's gone through the Sanhedrin. Their interrogation—he's hardly going to look the picture of health, is he? And there he is, standing before Pilate, and the Sanhedrin are shouting away that he's the king. And Pilate just turns and takes one look at him. Are you? The king of the Jews? What kind of king is this? Somebody beaten? Somebody the picture of weakness? Somebody who looks... Isolated? Abandoned? I mean, if you were a pilot, what question would you have asked? I mean, one comes to mind, an obvious one. If you're a king, then where's your subjects? If you're a king, where's your followers? there he is alone and Pilate says to him I suspect with contempt are you the king of the Jews and Jesus just says to him almost the same as he said to the Sanhedrin you're saying it he said that to the Sanhedrin didn't he you say that I am your own words, say it. And he says the same thing to Pilate. You have said it. I think it's important to note that how Jesus answers, are you the king of the Jews? He doesn't reply by saying, "Um, I'll be the king when I get to the power, to the throne at some stage in the future, or I will become the king when they accept me. The question is, are you the king of the Jews now? It's almost the same question as the wise men asked. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Not born to be king, but born as king. And here's Jesus standing here at the other end of his earthly life. And it's almost the same question. Are you now the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, basically, I am. So what does that mean for those who are handing him over. I mean, they're Jews. So what does it mean for them to have their king handed over to Rome? Well, surely it means that they are rebels, that they are engaged in the ultimate act of rebellion against their king. They didn't realize that, perhaps. Perhaps. But that's what they're doing, and solemn. Of course, Pilate, as he looks at Jesus, he just, full of pity. Pilate probably thinks Jesus is deluded. And whatever else he might be guilty of in Pilate's eyes. He's not a threat to Pilate's rule. As far as Pilate can see things. And I think the Jews probably picked that up. Because they say there in verse 5. He stirs up the people. Teaching throughout all Judea. From Galilee even to this place. Pilate. He was looking at the powerless Christ and just discovering how powerless he was himself. But he heard from the words of the of the chanting Sanhedrin, he heard from them a possible route out of the dilemma. And the route out of the dilemma, of course, was the the mentioning of Herod who happens to be in Jerusalem at that time he's probably come down for the Passover that's what everybody did at that time of year so Herod's in Jerusalem and Pilate says well since Jesus is stirring up people in Galilee I'll just pass it on to Herod which he did There in verses 6 to 12. And I suppose if we had spoken to Herod that day after seeing Jesus, Herod would have regarded it as a very good day. After all, from his point of view, he had seen a celebrity and had the added bonus of him and Pilate no longer being at enmity with each other. Pilate, sorry, Herod, had been curious about Jesus for a long time. It looks as if he had never actually seen him, which was quite surprising. But anyway, he had heard a lot about him, And even in one place he had assumed that somehow or other he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Gives a lot of insight into Herod's thinking that he actually thought that. But anyway, he wanted to see Jesus because he had heard him do all these signs and Jesus seemed just to do them Almost at the drop of a hat. So why shouldn't he be able to do one for Herod in that way? But when Jesus appears before Herod, doesn't do anything, doesn't say anything. John the Baptist, of course, whenever he was with Herod. He had plenty to say. He had warned Herod, as we know, about his sinful life. And he had done it sometimes. And Herod trembled. But he's now in the presence of a greater than John the Baptist. And the one who is the eternal word, hasn't got a word for him. Herod's response, as we can see from verse 11, is to engage in contempt and mock him. I think there's something very striking about what Herod does. I suspect that Jesus was there and his clothes would be pretty poor. Herod, we're told there in verse 11, gives Jesus splendid clothing. Why would you give splendid clothing to a man with no future? I think the answer is that Herod saw no reason why Jesus wouldn't have a future. I mean, how did Pilate know that Herod had no desire to condemn Jesus? And I think the answer is probably in the fact that Jesus came back to Pilate in a different set of clothes. He was dressed by Herod because Herod didn't think he was going to die. And Herod, even though he treated Jesus with contempt, saw no reason why he should die. So he goes back to Pilate. Trial number 4, verses 13 and following. And Herod, well, he comes out and tells, the, sorry, Pilate comes out and tells the people, you brought them to me and I find no reason to condemn him. And I sent him to Herod and Herod has found no reason to condemn him because he sent him back. And he just points out to the Jews, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. I mean, Pilate has come to the conclusion that Jesus is guilty of a minor offence. The minor offence of going around saying that he's God. It was true, of course, that, that Jesus is God but from Pilate's point of view it's a minor offence I mean Pilate wouldn't be too bothered if everybody said that so therefore he'll punish Jesus for a little offence and let him go and the Jews we can see what they said give us Barabbas. I mean, it was the custom, as we know, that the Jews could um, get anyone released at this time of year who happened to be in prison. And Pilate, as you know from other Gospels, he, I suspect, thought to himself, "If if I offer them the worst man in the city... Surely they will take him, so they will take Jesus rather than the worst man in the city. But when it came to a choice between Jesus and the worst man, they chose the worst man. Here are the religious Jews, the descendants of Abraham what nation through whom the blessing is going to come to the world. Here's their Messiah. Who's given them all their signs. Ample evidence that he's the promised one. Here he is. Offered to them. Final offering we might say. And offered to them by the representative of the most powerful man on earth at the time and they chose the worst man. What a picture, sad picture, could almost say as far as their choice is concerned Anyone but Jesus. Sad. Beyond words. But Pilate. Jews made their choice. Pilate made his choice. And although they came by different routes. They made the same choice. They chose to condemn Jesus. So that's the four trials, but just a couple of lessons from it. First one is the testimony that's provided here by Luke highlights the clear innocence of Jesus. Both the Jewish court and the Gentile court had to condemn him on lies, lies that they came up with, and his innocence is there. Pilate, I find nothing in this man guilty of the charges against him. The darker the canvas, the brighter the purity of Jesus shines. Not once in this sequence of kangaroo courts did Jesus ever sin. (coughs) So we're to look at his innocence. The spotless lamb heading to the sacrifice. We could say that at this moment he's at the butcher's. But even there, no sin comes from him. And the second thing we can learn from this is the incredible fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53 7. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We say it with reverence. Jesus, when he wanted to, could speak for a long time. He could give the Sermon on the Mount. He could give the talk he gave in John chapter 14 to 16. And there are plenty other occasions where he says a lot. Everything he says, of course, is wonderful. But as Solomon says, there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. Jesus here I'm sure he got comfort from Isaiah 53 as he was standing there. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. What would have happened if he had What if he had decided to judge them rather than remain silent? Of course, a third lesson from all this is that judging Jesus has consequences for those involved. For the Sanhedrin, for Herod, and for Pilate. And these consequences are still going on today. Some of the Sanhedrin, of course, became disciples of Jesus. Or at least became public disciples of Jesus after being secret ones. Like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. The rest of them, and Herod, and Pilate, where are they today? They were close to Jesus back then, closer they couldn't be. Now they're as far away from him as it's possible to be. It had consequences for them. And the last thing, last lesson to take from it is we've all got to make a judgment about Jesus. As we look at him there, in each of these judgment scenes, the question that C.S. Lewis raised comes to mind Was Jesus mad, bad, or who he said he was? Was he mad, accepting these allegations against him? Was he bad? Persisting to the end in his attempt to delude people? Or was he who he said he was? The one who had come into the world to suffer and to die? And each of us has to answer that question. And there's no other real options, are there? Is he mad? Bad? Or is he who he says he is? And the answer is, he is who he says he is. And his words in verse 69 of chapter 22 are currently going on. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's where he is. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks that there was one dignified person in each of these trials. And that person was Jesus, your son. And through all these processes, he maintained his dignity, acted as he truly was, the servant of God, there functioning as the servant of his people, as he made his way to the cross unjustly condemned but led there to pay the penalty for sin we thank you Lord not just for his dignity but also for his determination that he was determined to go to your right hand but there was only one way for him to go there and that was via the cross and his resurrection and then his ascension help us Lord to admire him even now not just to sit passively but to admire him and say to him, we think you were great. Lord, help us to think about what Jesus went through and just to say from our hearts, he is our Lord. So bless us, we pray, for your own name's sake. Amen.